You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Vera Bittner, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. There's no argument that HDL cholesterol is a powerful risk factor for cardiovascular events. What remains to be shown is whether raising HDL successfully reduces cardiovascular events and whether HDL therefore should be a target of therapy. Today we're going to explore HDL's role as a risk factor, as a potential therapeutic target, and learn more about subfractions of HDL and what's new in the story of HDL for risk reduction. Welcome to Lipid Luminations. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and our guest today is Dr. Virgil Brown, Professor of Medicine Emeritus at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Brown is the past president of the National Lipid Association, and HDL cholesterol is one of his special interests. Virgil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alan. Good to be with you. So, Virgil, let's start with some questions regarding the robustness of HDL as a risk factor. How would you prioritize HDL as a risk factor in relationship to the other components of the standard lipid profile? And how much value does it add to LDL cholesterol, for example, in assessment of risk? Well, HDL has been a very strong risk factor documented in trial after trial, uh, in community studies and in clinical trials as well. So I think there's no question that this is one of the most powerful risk factors it grows even stronger uh, in older people, uh, which is not true of many other risk factors such as LDL. So the clinician must pay attention to the HDL value. So do you think, Virgil, that the reason it hasn't been a target of therapy is, uh, since it is such a powerful risk factor has just been because we haven't had that many great tools for raising HDL? It's not only that we don't have great tools, but we also don't understand a great deal about how those tools work and we do not have clinical trials that are definitive that have shown that when you change HDL a given amount, you reduce risk a given amount. So in contrast to LDL, uh, we do not have the kind of strong scientific evidence from clinical studies that changing HDL actually makes a difference. So with regard to how to change HDL, you know, are there specific functions about HDL that make it beneficial or maybe not so beneficial, and do you think these might have some impact on our attempts to modify HDL? Well, there's a strong body of uh, basic science evidence from primarily from animal studies that the function of HDL is to pick up cholesterol in all of our tissues except for the liver, carry it back to the liver, uh, the one organ that can actually excrete cholesterol from the body. The liver puts extra cholesterol into the bile and that enters the gut and of course then leaves the body in the stool. So uh, that is a important function that uh, we know HDL plays. It has many other potential functions. It has anti-inflammatory, anti-infectious, many other properties have been described for HDL. Uh, but I think the one that we should focus our attention on is this reverse cholesterol transport for excretion from the body. So with that in mind, maybe you could review for us how the average clinician should look at HDL and how that might change their approach to treatment beyond just looking at LDL alone. Well, my approach has been to view a patient who comes into my office with an HDL that is low, below 40, certainly uh, in men or women, and some would say that below 50 in women also should call your attention to the uh, HDL factor. And this marks a high-risk patient, and so you need to pay very careful attention to all risk factors in such a patient. 
I believe you should be more aggressive in controlling the risk factors that you can indeed control. For example, cigarette smoking should be a doubly strong target for you uh, as a physician. You should work on that every time the patient comes into your office. Lowering blood pressure is more important in a low HDL patient. And, of course, lowering LDL cholesterol is very important in such patients. Uh, I think the combination of high triglycerides in the low HDL patient is also something that is often not given enough attention and uh, clearly is a major risk, risk complex that is low HDL in the presence of high triglycerides. So I guess the main message here is when you have low HDL, you should treat those things that you can treat and that have been shown to benefit the patient when you do treat them. So do you have any feeling, Virgil, you know, obviously with uh, LDL being the principal target of therapy, and then when the patient has elevated triglycerides, the guidelines would suggest that we proceed to non-HDL as a target. Do you have any sense whether you would recommend that people treat the non-HDL by just more aggressively lowering LDL cholesterol, or do you think they should consider combination therapy to try and treat the HDL and triglycerides? I think that the non-HDL cholesterol remains a marker of risk even when LDL is within the target range. LDL below 100 looks very good in most patients who don't have acute coronary syndromes or diabetes and vascular disease. Uh, but that should not satisfy you if the triglycerides are up in the 200 range or so and the HDL is low. There, I think taking the total blood cholesterol and subtracting the HDL from it gives you a new target of treatment in such a patient. And that uh, person, let's say the one I've just mentioned whose target is LDL under 100, should have their non-HDL under 130. That is an issue that I see missed over and over again in patients who've been referred to me. Physicians that are so focused on LDL that they forget to do that very simple calculation in patients with high triglyceride and reestablish a new target. Okay, well, interesting. Now, as you know, uh, we've had some teasers in the clinical trials lately that suggest, at least on things like carotid IMT, that affecting HDL and triglycerides may have some benefits beyond LDL lowering, and certainly some smaller clinical trials suggesting that raising HDL may lead to better outcomes. So the real question is, do we have adequate tools to raise HDL? And can you give us your vision of what you think the actual clinical outcome trials will show? Well, the niacin trials, of course, have been very interesting. Niacin is by far and away the most potent drug we have that raises HDL. And the trials with niacin and statins or niacin and cholestopol or other drugs, cholestyramine, for example, have been impressive even in small numbers, both uh, with regard to changing the anatomy of the vessel, carotid or coronary, by a variety of different uh, methods of measurement. But they've also shown strong trends toward reducing uh, events, myocardial infarction, for example, uh, in the studies that Greg Brown has done in Seattle. So I, I think those are exciting studies, and they certainly should uh, cause us to think very carefully about using uh, therapy with combinations of niacin. On the other hand, they don't satisfy the scientist who says, well, yeah, but you, know, you really didn't have statistically significant relationships between your HDL change and your event rate change. You, know, you really don't have that kind of strong evidence that we have with LDL, and to be certain uh, that is HDL. We need that uh, for future considerations, particularly of new drug development, for example. 
The problem also with niacin is it does so many different things. It is a good LDL-lowering drug, and it's a very good triglyceride-lowering drug. So HDL change is only part of the outcome of using niacin therapy, and therefore it's, it's confusing when you look at the data as to what you actually did with niacin. So I think we can say that just empirically, niacin therapy added to other drugs adds benefit, but the actual mechanism of that benefit, actually attributing it to HDL, is pure conjecture at this point. It is not scientifically documented in that sense. So uh, that leaves the door open. I think we all use niacin in lipid clinics because we have all of this good evidence uh, that it works, but we still are somewhat unsatisfied with the proof that it's the HDL-raising property of niacin that really got the work done. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host. Our guest today is Dr. Virgil Brown, and we're discussing how we best use HDL in the clinical setting, not only as a risk factor for coronary disease, but as a potential target for therapy. Any comments on the use of fibrates in patients with low HDL? Yeah, you know, if niacin's complicated, fibrates are even more complicated because the Cholesterol content of lipoproteins is altered rather profoundly with uh, fibrates. So you start off with a patient who has small dense HDL and small dense LDL and you use a fibrate and the properties of those particles change so that the cholesterol no longer means exactly the same thing. So you can have actually fewer LDL particles under the influence of fibrates but actually have more cholesterol in them. And um, it looks as though the particle number for LDL may give you more information than just the cholesterol content. So in the VA HIT study, the uh, cholesterol value went, did not go down, but the particle number did go down. And uh, that particle number change uh, was actually related uh, statistically to a reduction in events. And on the HDL side, it's even more complicated. Some of the HDL particle numbers went up, and then some of the smaller HDL particles also went up. HDL is so complicated in its structure that when you begin to delve into what actually changes in all of these HDL particles, you come out with some very complex information. And it's interesting, in the VA hit, the rise in small HDL was also predictive of a reduction in vascular events. It raises another problem, Alan. I mean, it's one of the reasons we've had so much trouble with HDL is it's not one simple thing like LDL. It's many different particles with different amounts of lipid on them, different proteins in them, and with different functions. We know that these particles interact with cells differently depending on which proteins are present and their size. So it has been a basic science as well as a clinical problem to actually figure out how HDL does its job. So with that said, Virgil, if you have a patient that's just got isolated low HDL and their other risk factors are fairly stable, how do you determine whether you're going to go after that HDL and what choice of therapy do you choose? Well, I think in that setting, lipid values, of course, are important. And some would say you need to know particle number, uh, either by measuring A1 or doing a magnetic resonance uh, spectral analysis, which is also available to the clinician to assess the number of HDL particles. But I think 
examining the family history is also very important because often these low HDL values are inherited. Whatever the problem is in a given patient is an inherited problem. Now, you also, it also may tip you off to the fact that they're doing things that lower their HDL. Uh, perhaps one of the most profound is that they may be taking androgens. So if you have a young man who's all muscled up, who comes in with a low HDL, you should immediately suspect that he's on uh, androgenic steroids uh, for muscle building. The other, of course, more commonly in middle-aged folks is uh, continuing to smoke cigarettes. That lowers your HDL. But obesity, gaining weight, drops your HDL value. So all of these are things that could be changed to benefit HDL directly. Exercise tends to raise HDL after you've reduced your weight to a new lower level, also is associated with a rise in HDL. So there are many things that we can actually do for HDL that change the value, but also in and of themselves are beneficial with regard to vascular disease risk. And so I think the physician must think about those issues. Now, coming back to the patient that where these things have been done, uh, and you still have a low HDL, the decision has to be made as to whether you actually introduce a drug that will raise HDL. And here's where we get into trouble, because even though niacin is a very powerful HDL-raising drug in most of us, the value of that change in a given individual is very variable. Some people with niacin therapy will increase their HDL by fourfold, and others may show no change at all. And it's very hard to predict who those people are going to be until you actually uh, do the experiment. You give them the drug and see what happens. But I, in general, do not treat low HDL uh, other than by the means I've just mentioned, unless pure and simple. I want to see some other target. I want to lower triglyceride as my main target. I want to lower LDL. I want to stop that cigarette smoking. And then you just often have to accept HDL as it is once you have accomplished those other goals. Well, I think chasing HDL per se when everything else is in order is not documented by clinical trial data. Well, Virgil, as always, there's always wonderful wisdom in your conversations, and I'm thrilled to be able to share this conversation with our audience. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Virgil Brown regarding the role of HDL and uh, the role it plays as a risk factor for coronary disease, as a potential target of therapy, and then some of the newer therapies that are being studied in clinical trials. I'm Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.